Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Guess what? We have both Chris and John on the intro today, shaking it up. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Yeah, it's a little different. This is the first time we've done an intro not in the same room in four years, I think. It's kind of weird, but you know what? It actually sounds really good over Skype. I'm really surprised. Yeah, John and I are doing it over Skype because I think I caught the bubonic plague and I did not want to bring that into his household. No, thank you. Although my girlfriend, I think, has the same thing, so uh, I'm probably going to get it anyway. Yeah, you're done for. So we wanted to both be on this because this is an important episode for us. We did this last year and we wanted to make sure we do it again this year. This is our best of 2014 episode where John and I take, I think we did seven each of our favorite episodes and we pulled a clip or two out just to kind of pull out the best information to be fair though we tried to not have any overlap so it really is like our favorite 12 or 14 yeah yeah and there's good stuff in here and it's also a way you can hear it and go oh man i want to go back and listen to that episode or i missed that episode i'm gonna go check it out it's kind of catching you up Yeah, this is a great place to start. If you're a first time listener, you get to really see what we're about. And then, you know, you can head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com, see all the stuff that we do over there, catch up on our back catalog, all that great stuff. And sign up for the newsletter while you're there. We're going to make this intro short because we have a pretty long episode. It's tough to squeeze the best of an entire new year. But congratulations on making it through 2014 and best of luck in the new year. Let's turn it over to our favorite episodes of 2014. All right, guys, let's have some fun with this. I'm going to kick off my best of 2014 with perhaps my favorite interview of all time on SPP. 
I know that's bringing a lot to the table, but there was just something about this guy that I raved about. And I'll never forget the first day we aired it. My dad called me and he knows that the podcast he listens, he likes it, but he's never usually this excited. And he called after this episode and said, oh my gosh, I was blown away. And that's when I knew it wasn't just me. And this guest has left uh, a lasting impression on me. This is Roger Hamilton. It was episode 151. He is a wealth consultant, but in my opinion, he's more of a career and life mentor with a talent for storytelling. So we talked a lot to Roger about your passion or your work, which is something that you all know we love. And you constantly hear these ideas based on following your passion or following your strengths. And and your strengths is what Roger's advocating for. It's not a new concept. But the way he discusses it in this entire episode and in his book, he uses the idea of flow. It's not finding your exact strength. It's not the one thing you do and that you only have one job. But it's what you're in general really good at and how you can leverage it. I'm going to let Roger take it from here. And I think there's also an element around understanding what our natural strengths are. And that's a large part of what I I discovered is that when people follow their natural flow, the thing that actually allows them to become successful, you know, like, for example, I know people who are great with people. They have no problem contacting, you know, uh, anyone and getting to know them, but then they're just not so good with the numbers. And so every time they're out there making money, somehow it just disappears again. Uh, but when they realize, well, you know what, that's like a blaze genius, like someone like you hear the story about Jack Welsh, how he got started with General Electric or Rudy Giuliani when he took over as mayor of New York. First thing they did was get a really strong finance guy and it allowed them to become successful in ways they just couldn't if they were doing it on their own. So here's the thing. A lot of people, they hear this thing about go follow your passion. But that for a lot of people is the last thing you should do because your passion is, I mean, it could be a hobby, but it doesn't mean you're going to make money out of it. But understanding how to follow your passion profitably is actually a very different thing. And understanding how to find the right role models who have the same passion with you and has turned it into profit, um, that's the pathway which leads to success far more effectively. Okay, now moving on to our second clip from Roger. I thought this one was important to include because the analogies he uses, the stories he tells, the images he conjures have stuck with me. They literally have changed my actions in the course of a day, which is... It's hard to do. We have a lot of stimulus, but this one constantly comes up in my mind. He talks about why do we feel that work has to be so hard? Why do we have to be grinding it out? And this is one of the reasons Roger is so great. He explains things in such a visceral way that you can remember them. Here's Roger's opinion. Every one of us, I think, has had an experience in life where things just came easy. And we've all had experiences in life where things are just really tough. And no matter what we do, it all just goes wrong. And it's a little bit like being in a river where if you are going downstream, you can go pretty fast without feeling you're using any effort at all. And it's like everything gets attracted to you. Like any leaves that drop in the river come straight into the path of flow, which is what I call the path of least resistance. You go the opposite, which is when you're going upstream. And it doesn't matter how hard you're pushing, it's still going to feel like hard work. And there's so many people through life that actually go out of their way to follow something which feels like hard work. I think that has a lot to do with our education system. I think that when we're at school, you know, like we all remember those days when we might be great at something. I know I was great at art. 
and I would ace art all the time. But when I went home or when I went to see my teacher, they wouldn't be saying, hey, well done on the art. You've got an A. Just, just focus at that because you'll find other people to do the numbers. You'll find other people to do, you know, like, you know, the, the communication side. It's like, no, they were like, why did you get a C in French? You know, why did you get like a, a B in maths? You've got to work harder at those. And I spent my time beating myself up for not being good enough at the areas where I was kind of like below average. And I didn't spend anything like as much time mastering the things I was already best at. Uh, and when you actually go out into the world and you keep with that same pathway, which is, look, if it feels like it's easy, there's probably something wrong in that. I shouldn't be doing that so much. I should focus on the stuff that actually is hard work and that I've got to work at because, you know, that's the work ethic. That's the one which means I should be focusing on that. And we actually go out of our way to go upstream and make life difficult for ourselves. And it's only when you look at the most successful people in the world and you realize they've actually just said, you know what, I'm going to do the stuff I love to do and that I know I'm most productive and valuable at. I'll find other people that can do the other bits and they'll probably love doing the things I'm not so good at because that's their flow. And before you know it, you then get a whole team together and that flow then grows into a group momentum, which is really when businesses take off. And the last clip from Roger, he's the only guest I'm going to be including three clips from in this segment. But this one is the nail in the coffin, solidifying him as one of my favorite guests of all time, again, largely due to his ability to create visuals behind a message and allow it to stick with me. He also has one of the best quotes in SPP history, and it's about Superman. Here you go. Passion has a path, but there's a discipline that needs going first. You know, one of the things I say is, you know, and, and passion and purpose is, is linked in this way because purpose also is something that provides meaning in things, but there's got to be a structure first to do it, right? So, you know, even Superman has to be Clark Kent some of the time, right? He, it's like he's not going to get paid to, to save the world. So he's got to start by saying, right, I'm going to be Clark Kent for like, you know, like some working hours. I'm going to earn enough money by just kind of showing up with my glasses, and my suit on to be able to go out and, you know, afford the stretchy pants and then I'll go save the world. And so there's a balance between how we bridge going from a job we hate uh, to something that we're actually really passionate about, where taking those steps one by one, you know, another analogy, you can get, I, I love metaphors, but another analogy would be, you know, watching those guys on the X Games, you know, being able to do the huge jumps off the black run when they're skiing and go, wow, that's awesome. Well, you might be inspired by that, but the first step is not to go up in the black run. The first step is to just learn how to snowplow in the kind of nursery slopes and, and know there's going to be a journey here. It's not like, you know, it's immediately going to happen, but there's a journey. But if you're willing to follow that journey and you take it step by step, there's no question you're going to end up on that black run. It's just a matter of dedicating yourself to the process. Moving on, another one of my favorite episodes of 2014 was episode 139 with Gerald Shertavian. Gerald is not only a super successful guy, but he was one of the most charismatic and genuine guys we've had on the show. Gerald started his career on Wall Street, and then he went on to own his own financial firm, made millions of dollars, but constantly looking towards what he was going to do to give back. And in his mid-30s, he founded Year Up, which in my opinion is one of the best nonprofit organizations out there. I actually went and spoke to the students at Year Up about things I've learned on the podcast, things I think will help them succeed in life, because I just, I was so motivated by talking to Gerald. You'll have to listen to the entire episode again, 139 is the episode, to hear Gerald's full story. But in this first clip, Gerald tells us why it was so crucial for him to go work on Wall Street before getting into his true passion of philanthropy. And I love this because so many people scoff at the idea of work hard now to do something you enjoy later. A lot of times they say you continue to put that off. 
But in Gerald's case and what he goes on to explain, it made a lot of sense. Here it is. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. I think each person, perhaps what the, you know, the greatest gift we can ever give to ourselves is um, self-awareness. And so I knew, you know, I hadn't had a background in business. I hadn't ever had a lot of experience in managing people or growing organization. I certainly didn't have a network. And, and I knew I needed to acquire assets. You know, I was taught, I'll never forget, I had a mentor. And I never forget the day he said to me, Gerald, you can't give till you have. And it's okay in your life to be selfish for a while. It's okay to build Gerald Inc. Um, and to get the skills and the contacts and the networks the experience. Really ask yourself as you're getting in your 20s and 30s and 40s, how the balance between taking and giving exists in your own life. And if you're lucky and fortunate, you'll be able to shift that balance sooner and more significantly than not. And that stuck with me that uh, it was okay for a while to focus on what I needed to do to get some resources and experience, but to be conscious of asking yourself, when is the right time to make that shift? You know, when, I, when we sold our company, there were a whole bunch of folks saying, now here's the next big thing you can mm. do. Here's start this, here's money, here's capital. So you had a huge amount of interest in encouraging you to take that next big for-profit journey. And, you know, at that point, I decided, no, that's not what I wanted to do. I was in a position to go back to the essays I wrote to get into business school. And it was in a position to say, let's now focus your life on making that essay come true. In this next clip with Gerald, we talk a little bit about society as a whole and how we should be thinking about volunteer work. Gerald gives a really unique take on how volunteering can not only make you feel good and be a benefit to society, but can also go a long way in helping you find out the things that motivate you and that really spark your passion. It's a balance. I think the best thing folks can do today, and certainly younger folks, is get involved as a volunteer early on. Join a board in your 20s. You know, get involved in public service. It may not be your vocation, but start to tap into what types of avocation are you passionate about? What do you love doing? Uh, and then I think as you may be in a position to shift that balance, you've accumulated some experiences that tell you what are you passionate about? Where do you want to spend your time if you had discretion over where to spend your time? Uh, I think earlier on in one's career, it's all about gaining experience and getting closer and closer to that highly sought after point in life where you can match what you're good at with what you love most. Okay, moving on. Another favorite episode of 2014 was episode 155 with Josh Shank. I knew from the get-go I was going to enjoy talking to Josh. Not only had I read some of his things before, he is at his core an author. He is a journalist. And sometimes journalists make the best guess because their ability to deliver a story in a succinct and concise manner is really fantastic. But I knew I was going to like Josh because this book that we were discussing is called The Powers of Two, Finding the Essence of Innovation in Creative Pairs. The whole book is about how two minds are better than one, about how some of the most famous people in history had a counterpart that really brought them to their best. Think Steve Jobs had Wozniak. Paul McCartney had Lennon. Wilbur Wright had Orville. So in this podcast with John and I doing it, I've seen how pairs really can bring something to life. I wouldn't have done this on my own. I don't think John would have. But the two of us have created something we really enjoyed. And in this first clip, we ask him, what is chemistry? What's going on behind the scenes that make two people bond together for 
the purpose of a project or a solution of a problem? Is there a science behind it? What did he uncover? And what I found is the foundation is an enormous sense of alignment and rapport and similarity and and the kind of shared interest values. That's the kind of that's the floor, or that's the even beneath the floor. That's the concrete foundation that goes into the earth that allows you to, to to build something. But then on top of that, there needs to be challenge. There needs to be difference. There needs to be even tension, uh, because creativity is not about being comfortable. It's about it's about moving from where you are to something different or bigger. And it's often about encountering. The, creativity is often about the encounter of of disparate things. In this next clip with Josh, I ask him, what is it about working with someone else that makes it not only so beneficial, but also so difficult? It's very delicate. You know, it's just like um, any kind of life form. You know, there, there are lots of things that can throw it off. And the very things that give a pair its power, you know, can also bring it harm. The image that I use in the book is the stumble. And I, I like the image of a stumble because you only stumble when you're going somewhere, when you're moving. And it's often the same forces that have you moving if you're walking down the way. And, and it's that movement, it's that instability of that movement that makes you vulnerable to fall. Very often, the very dynamics that are at the heart of what make a pair great with John Lennon and Paul McCartney, it was this kind of fierce sense of yeah, I'm part of this thing that's bigger than me, but I'm also going to advocate for, for, for what's mine and what I believe. And that got uh, to be a point of real trouble for them, but it only w- was, uh, was deadly when it became combined with this other factor, which is it, a pair is dependent on the environment around it. And it's also vulnerable to changes or to instabilities in that environment. And a lot of times the way a pair does its best work together is by and that work is often enormously um, volatile, but that volatility is often enabled by a lot of safety and, and, and stability kind of around them. This next episode is easily one of my favorite of 2014, and I highly recommend you actually go listen to the entire episode. I'm talking about episode 150 with James Nestor. And even if you want to dive in, that's a pun that I'm going to use here. A little deeper, another one, go read his book, which is called Deep, Free Diving, Renegade Science, and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves. This was a subject I was unaware of, but it just drew me in. Another guy who is a writer at heart, we talk about free diving in the episode, which is basically how long can a person dive down in water and hold their breath? There's competitions out there and people reach hundreds of feet, 300 feet, four plus minutes underwater while holding their breath. But it's also used to learn more about the ocean. There's a whole world under there that we're beginning to understand through free diving. So in this first clip, I simply asked James, what's it like? How's it feel to go down there, be one with the ocean, hold your breath? I mean, for me, it hurts to just dive 10 feet in a swimming pool. How does someone like him after just a little bit of training, dive 40, 50 feet. Tell us a little bit more about what free diving is. Yeah, it's, it, it's pretty disarming at the beginning. I'll explain some very quick physics of water. What happens the deeper you go down, the more air contracts. And so instead of at altitude, when imagine you have like a bag of chips 
and you take that bag of chips with you on an airplane or up to the mountains, that bag of chips is going to puff up. If you take that same bag of chips and push it in to the water, it's going to collapse upon itself. The same thing happens with human lungs. Human lungs shrink to half their size at 30 feet, a third of their size at 66 feet, a quarter of their size at 99 feet, and so on. I know that sounds painful. It's not, and I'll explain why in a little bit. Uh, But what I'm trying to get to is the deeper you go down, the less buoyancy you have. So everyone's been in a swimming pool and you swim down, you really have to struggle and you have to kick your arms and kick your legs to stay down at the bottom of the swimming pool. Everything changes at around 25 feet, 25, 30 feet, where your buoyancy starts reversing. At around 25 to 30 feet, you, it's basically a zero gravity zone. You're at zero buoyancy. Neutral buoyancy is what they call it. Right past that is what freedivers call the doorway to the deep, where buoyancy reverses. You no longer have to swim. The ocean takes you down further and further, and you don't have to exert any effort. So one of my favorite things to do when I'm freediving is go down to that zone, that doorway to the deep where everything reverses, and to lie on the seafloor because you're not going to be buoyed up to the surface because everything's reversed. You're held down to the seafloor, and you can just sit there, and instead of fish going away and going into the other direction from you, they start approaching you, and they circle you, and they allow you into their their zone, and you're, you're a part of the environment. Uh, you're no longer a menace. You're no longer an outsider looking in. You're another marine mammal down there, and that shift will never get old. And uh, that's something that, uh, you know, I just look forward to doing over and over again. We'll be right back to this interview after a quick word from our sponsors. We know that if you're listening to this podcast, you are curious, you want to learn. Well, kickstart your new year and challenge yourself to learn something new with a free 10-day trial to lynda.com. Lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business. One of the great features I love about Lynda is that all of the courses are taught by experts, people who have been in this field for a long time and have gained a lot of recognition. Whether you want to set new financial goals, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, or find a new job, lynda.com has something for everyone sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash smart people sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash smart people and you'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com access to view tutorials on tablets iphone and android mobile devices and access to new courses added every week So for example, for Christmas, I got a new DSLR camera, so I want to learn how to use it better. And on Lynda, I can go on, watch tutorials from professional photographers and learn how to take better pictures. So do something good for yourself in 2015 and sign up for a free 10-day trial by visiting lynda.com slash smart people. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart people. In this next clip, I really show the fact that I know nothing about this, but I am a certified scuba diver. Everything I know about diving deep involves using oxygen down there and scuba gear. So how does the human body deal with free diving with no access to oxygen for an extended period of time in really deep depths? 
We are land mammals. How can someone dive down hundreds of feet and not die, not implode? The answer shocked me, surprised me, and delighted me. Um, we're literally born to free dive. We are born to do this. Cultures have done this for 10, 20, 30,000 years. Um, so our bodies are equipped with something called the mammalian dive reflex. This is also known as something called the master switch of life. Now, dolphins have this. Whales have it. Seals have it. Humans have it too. And these switches, these reflexes, allow us to withstand the incredible pressures of a deep dive. Our bodies completely transform. It's the most profound transformation that we can naturally experience. Right? The, the second you uh, put your face in the water, your heart rate's going to lower about 25%. Blood's going to start rushing from your extremities into your core. Um, your brain waves are going to soften. Uh, you're going to enter a meditative state. It's no coincidence that, you know, people, uh, when they're all hyped up and stressed out, uh, splash a little cold water on their face. That's the mammalian dive reflex. It's a, it spurs a physical transformation. It's not just an empty ritual. Now, the deeper we dive into the water, these reflexes become more profound. More of them start triggering. Eventually, uh, as the lungs shrink up, I know a lot of you were like, oh, I don't want my lungs to shrink up to half or a third. You don't really feel this happening because all of these triggers start um, flipping inside of your body. Your core, uh, areas of your core engorge with blood. Your lungs, the alveoli in your lungs begin engorging with blood to counteract those pressures. Now, these reflexes only happen when we dive deep and every single human has them. So we are literally born to do this. Our bodies are built to do this. Uh, free divers do not get the bends. Uh, the human body in its natural state is the only way someone can ascend from, say, 300 feet in a minute. You do that with scuba, your lungs explode and you die. But when you free dive, the body in its natural state, again, knows how to deal with the exchange of gases in the lungs. It knows how to purge these things from the body. And it allows you, a free diver can ascend as fast as he or she wants. There's no limit on that. This next guest was just a joy to interview. I'm talking about Kalis Taid, and this was episode 157. I actually found Kalis. I was reading some stupid article, probably BuzzFeed or something, of the top 10 richest bloggers in the world. And Kalis was, I don't know, number three or four. But when I read about what he did, it's not really a blog. He started a company called Envato. It's an entire business built around educating the world online. In fact, the company motto is helping people learn and earn online. So I knew it was a business I would enjoy. I also love talking to people worth hundreds of millions of dollars to see how they did it. This clip right here, you know, we've talked to a lot of CEOs and they tend to say very similar things. And I think this clip sums it up. He breaks down what he feels were the key to his company's success early on and throughout? There was a few things. So uh, I think definitely going into a business that I understood was a wise move for me anyhow. So, um, you know, the, the thing we started, um, 
I had a few traits when I look back at it, the flash marketplace. One, it was a revenue-making business from day one. So it was, a, it was a business about selling things. We didn't try to make a Twitter or Facebook where you need to get massive scale before money comes in the door. It was like a, a classic business, sell stuff. Right. <laughs> sell stuff from this person to this person and you know make some money along the way. I think uh, for a first-time entrepreneur choosing – a business which has um, got a clear revenue path is not a bad idea. And uh, more importantly, I chose a business that I had actually seen done. So I'd, you know, I'd participated as a seller on a flash marketplace. Well, it was for other things mostly, but you know, I'd, I'd seen the mechanics and understood it and kind of replicate a little bit. So it wasn't, um, I think sometimes we have this idea of entrepreneurs as, as, um, visionaries i'm sure there's lots of visionary entrepreneurs out there i'm not one of them i'm like i was just like a guy who wanted to make a business i'd seen a business i'd worked in and kind of understood it and thought of a few little tweaks i could make to improve it and and specialize it and carry it to a different niche and then after that it was mostly about execution um and execution don't get me wrong is is um it can be difficult and is, uh, you know, you don't want to like make like that's no big deal. Um, but I, I can see that no matter how good my execution was, if I'd picked something which I didn't really understand or pick something where the economics didn't actually work or pick something where the market was already full, no matter how good the execution was, it might have just fallen on his face. You know, being really tight with money, um, being very careful about how we spent and how we used those resources that we had, focusing on the the things that were going to be the most important to get out the door so that we could make money, so that we could pay things, so that we could make more money. This next guest was just such a highlight of 2014 for me. I'm talking about Peter Buffett, the son of the one-time world's richest man, Warren Buffett, in episode 168, I actually went and got a chance to see Peter speak, and he blew me away. He's incredibly smart. He's down to earth. He's kind, generous, philanthropic. How do you get somebody like this who comes from so much money? I hope you go listen to the whole episode to see, yes, he had some things given to him, but not much, especially considering who his father was. In this first clip, I really just asked him about his father, and I think right away we got a sense of how Peter became the man he is due to the man his father is. The uh, defining characteristic of my childhood was that my dad uh, loved going to work every day, and when he came home, he came home every day at the same time, uh, just like a lot of dads in the 60s, uh, at the dinner table every night. You know, so I had this very consistent uh, father and the whole kind of, you know, image of that. Um, and he was always happy. And he wasn't happy because he was making tons of money because we didn't know he was making tons of money. He was happy because he loved what he did. And the scorecard for loving what he did happened to be money. So <laughs> all his money would be piling up. But we weren't buying this or that. He still lives in the house I grew up in. He bought it in 1958 and he's still there. He drives himself to the same office as he did since I was, I think, five years old. In this next clip with Peter, I had to ask him something that had been gnawing at me. I'd heard a lot of things that Warren Buffett, although a great family man, is just ruthless and vicious when it comes to business. And there's a lot of things out there that support this claim that he's willing to do anything for the buck. So I asked Peter, his answer, 
well, it's what a son would give, I would imagine, but it also had some legs to it. I'll let you be the judge. Well, yeah, and that's really great and very interesting because I would not define it as ruthless only because ruthless feels like you don't take anything else under consideration. Uh, you know, it has a it, it sounds very negative and, and mean essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And and what I think my dad's I think the secret really to his success is a different variation on ruthlessness which is uh, dispassionate or unemotional. So he, uh, he famously says the stock doesn't know you own it, right? <laughs> so you have all these feelings about the business or the stock or this thing in your life or the money and what it means and, you know, all these kinds of things. He is incredibly rational, uh, which could be misconstrued as ruthless because he doesn't allow his emotions uh, to play really any role in his decision making. He's just completely detached from the negotiation. And I'm wrapping up my best of 2014 with my man crush of 2014, Simon Sinek. This is episode 149. He's just a really intellectual guy who likes solving problems that I believe in. These are people problems. These are why we do what we do, why companies do what they do. So in this first clip, Simon is talking about context and why context matters. The way we frame things stimulates our actions. And so it's really important to look at that context, to look at that frame of mind. And so the way we frame something in our own minds has significant impact in the decisions, in the decisions we make and the way we, the way we behave. I'll give you another funny example. I was watching the uh, Summer Olympics, and I was amazed how the journalists would basically all ask the, the athletes the same question, whether it was before the competition or after the competition. They would always ask, were you nervous? And the thing that was always surprising to me was all the athletes always said, no, they weren't. And if you think about what makes us feel that we're nervous. That's right. Your heart starts racing. Your, your palms get a little sweaty. You know, you anticipate what's about to happen and you get nervous, right? Um, but those are the same stimuli for excitement. What happens when you get excited? Your heart starts racing. You start anticipating what about, what's about to happen. And so whether through training or naturally, who knows, these athletes had learned to interpret, it seems, the stimuli that we would call nervousness as excitement. In other words, they wouldn't say, so when, so when asked the question, are you nervous? They'd say, no, I'm excited. That's what they would say. And so it's simply a framework and understanding how to interpret the stimuli. And so I've played around with it. You know, I, I've been nervous about something. And I said to myself, ooh, this is fun. And it completely changed hmm. my outlook and how I was sort of about to go into something. You know, it could be something as silly as a date or something as big as, you know, a business deal or something as sort of mundane as turbulence on a plane where we interpret the stimuli of our bodies as nervousness, but all we have to do is reframe it. This is what the why did to me. And it, it reframed the, the journey that I was on. So it was no longer a pursuit of the result. It was now a pursuit of the cause. It was a pursuit of the belief. And that reframing does remarkable things to one's passion and one's ability to sort of make decisions that are good for us. And in my final favorite clip of 2014, I asked Simon... For all the research he does regarding individuals, how we act individually, 
why we do what we do, how does he then translate it into the business world, into an organization? He speaks oftentimes to large companies. So if his message is very targeted at the singular, how does it affect the organization? Why do they bring him in? He gives what I believe to be one of the best descriptions of what an organization or a company actually is and how a culture is formed from individuals. Well, as I said before, you know, one of the paradoxes of being human is we are at all times individuals and members of groups, always. Whether it's a family or a church or a company or a baseball team or whatever it is. And the problem is, is, you know, we have these discussions, you know, what should you do? Should you serve the group or should you serve yourself? Well, the answer is yes. It's a, it's, it's a paradox. It's a conflict sometimes. And sometimes it causes a stress. Do I sacrifice or do I, do I act selfishly? And the answer is yes. You know, it's, these are hard decisions. This is why it's hard to be human. And so necessarily to discuss what it means to be an individual requires that we talk about what it means when, when we live in groups as well. Um, and so um, just as the law uh, understands a corporation as an individual – in some way, shapes, or form, it, it acts like one as well. You know, the IBM today announced. IBM didn't announce anything. You know, it was somebody who said, hey, we need to get this word out. Somebody wrote a press release. Somebody approved it, and ta-da, IBM announced. There's usually a single person um, or at least a group of people who, who agreed to something, uh, and it becomes the word or the action of the company. Uh, what is the, the device? Metonymy? Is that the, the literary device where the part represents the whole? I can't remember. Sounds good to me. Anyway. <laughs> Too many uh, syllables in that word. <laughs> right. So, for example, we discuss the character of a human being. Somebody's of good character. Well, the character of an individual scaled up is the culture of a company. So as somebody of strong character, well, they're going to be honest, right? And they're going to be – they're going to act with integrity. This is somebody we would say has strong character. Right? We, we'd rather work or, or marry or be friends with people of strong character. Well, guess what? A strong culture is one of honesty and integrity and people act for the good of each other and not necessarily for the good of themselves. You know, a, somebody of strong character would sacrifice sometimes their interests for the good of their friends or their family. We say that person has strong character. Well, it's exactly the same thing. All the same descriptions apply except we apply them to the group instead of the individual. One of my personal favorite episodes from 2014 was episode 130 with Carmine Gallo. Carmine is the author of the amazing book, Talk Like Ted, The Nine Public Speaking Secrets of the World's Top Minds. And in these clips, we'll hear Carmine talk about only being as successful as your ideas and a little bit about passion. Hope you enjoy. The people that are leading the charge, who are changing lives, who are innovating, are the ones that can disseminate their content the best. And oftentimes that's through personal interaction. So it's really a key regardless of what field you're in. I like to say that you are, especially in the next few years, uh, especially in the next decade, you're only as successful as your ideas and those people who can communicate their ideas more persuasively who can share those ideas and sell themselves in a way that captivates their listeners, inspires people. They're the ones who are going to stand apart. And I, I see that every day. I get emails and calls from a number of people who, who have either read my books or they've read my columns or who I've come to know uh, who are elevated within their companies, major companies, and they are uh, their career trajectory is moving much, much faster than they otherwise would be because primarily they can give a great presentation. 
where people understand them better. They're just much more persuasive communicators. Uh, actually, uh, Warren Buffett, the billionaire Warren Buffett, had a great video. There's a, there's a little clip on YouTube. He was actually talking to a class of business students. I believe they were from Columbia. So he's talking to a class of business students, and he challenged them. He said, I will give any of you $100,000 in return for 10% of your future earnings. If you are a good public speaker, I'll give you 150000 Wow. Yeah, so communication is, is essential. And so few people think about it. And that's why I think those people who can present well, communicate well, speak well, will stand out. You had mentioned that passion plays a very important role in what you learned. And, and you discussed that early on in this book. Could you tell us about that? I think passion is everything. Ever since I started as a communication coach, I realized that those people who are the most inspiring leaders, and you can think about this yourselves, guys, think about someone who you have met or someone who you have seen speak or someone you've worked with who you consider inspiring. You actually use the word, that person was inspiring to me. More often than not, that person probably had an abundance of passion for what they did. Passion is contagious. We actually can prove this scientifically now. There have been a number of studies out, and frankly, a lot of my book, the Talk Like Ted book that you're uh, referring to, does have a lot of science behind it. I really spent time trying to understand science. Uh, I did talk to researchers who say that there are a number of studies that show that passion is contagious. You don't even know why you may like somebody, but if that person is enthusiastic, energetic, they have a smile on their face because they, are, they can't wait to share their material with you that actually influences your perception of that person and their product. So passion is very important. But the thing about passion is you have to dig deep to identify what it is that you're truly passionate about. So, for example, when I interviewed Howard Schultz, one of my first interviews as a communications author, I interviewed Howard Schultz, the founder of Starbucks, and I realized over a two-hour interview that he rarely mentioned the word coffee. And finally, I asked him, well, aren't you, it doesn't seem like that's what you're passionate about. He said, well, you're right, I like coffee, but what I'm truly passionate about is creating a workplace that treats people with dignity and respect, a workplace that my father never had the opportunity to work for. That's what motivates me and that drive toward better customer service and customer relations. And that's when I realized something. It, it completely changed the way I look at communication. You need to identify what business you're really in. Starbucks was in the business of the product is coffee. That's the product. But the business is customer service. And so you have to identify what it is that you're really talking about. Dig deep to identify what you are truly passionate about. And it's usually not the obvious. It's not the product. It's what the product means to the lives of your listeners. That will make the biggest difference. And now it's time for our awesome sponsors who support Smart People Podcast. Let me tell you about one of Time Magazine's best gadgets in 2014. It's called Smart Things. SmartThings allows you to monitor, control, and automate your home from wherever you are using only your smartphone. With SmartThings, you can easily monitor and control your lights, electronics, and small appliances wherever you are. You can even use the kits for home security, set up easily without monthly fees, contracts, or complicated installations. Do you lose your keys all the time? 
You can use SmartThings to find where you left your keys in your house, track your pets as they come and go, or even see when doors and windows are opened. The free SmartThings mobile app works with iOS, Android, and Windows Phone. It's really easy to get started. All you have to do is follow the in-app instructions to connect to the SmartThings hub. Then just place smart sensors and devices around the house. Right now, SmartThings is offering Smart People podcast listeners 10% off any of its home security or solution kits by going to smartthings.com slash smartpeople. Get 10% off any home security or solution kit and free shipping in the U.S. when you go to smartthings.com slash smartpeople. The next episode that I wanted to spotlight is episode 132, Corinne Woods. Corinne is the director of the UN Millennium Campaign, which supports citizens' efforts to hold their governments accountable for achieving the Millennium Development Goals. The reason I like this episode so much is because I think she has a perfect answer to one of Chris's questions when she talks about focus and humility and just knowing what you're good at and making sure that you apply yourself to those things. Hope you guys enjoy. I tend to get overwhelmed when I have a number of different things going on, when I can't put my focus somewhere. And for you, I mean, take that to the largest scale possible, right? You pretty much look at the biggest issues, challenges facing humanity and then say, okay, let's apply technology or whatever it might be to try to improve these things. Do you ever get overwhelmed? Do you ever struggle with which one to focus on or there's too much to do or I'm just one person? My approach is always there's a degree of humility. (laughs) My wonderful Mm -hmm. cousin just said to me, you're just a cog in the system. And it's true. You know, there's lots of different really smart people doing really amazing stuff all about let's make sure we will do what we say we need to do. So I'm one person, one leader in the UN doing one set of things. So that's, first of all, sort of a degree of humility. Secondly, a degree of clarity about what I bring to the table. I am someone who's smart, makes stuff happen, great with partnerships, but I'm not a policy wonk. I'm not a specialist in nutrition. I'm not an economist. So what I'm good at is bringing a particular set of skills and a particular set of abilities to a problem that's bigger than those set of skills and abilities. And the smart thing is to say, I will focus on that. I will make sure that I'm working with others who are doing those other things and we make sure there's complementarity, but I get right the bit that I can get right. And then to remain continually hopeful. I was just in Denmark with a team of people who talk about the Millennium Development Goals and say there's been incredible progress. In fact, it's the world's best news. And I really like that idea of saying, you know what, we are seeing progress. We are seeing things getting better. So let's continue to focus on, they call it positive deviance in my, my, my line of work, where, you know, let's focus on what works and build and keep on getting things better and better and better. And you see it everywhere. The other thing is, you, you know, I may be one person, but incredible the, the, the sort of pool of goodwill that there is out there. People who are ready to say, you know what, I totally believe in what you are doing. You, the UN, you, the issues on development. We'll give our time for free. We'll help you to do this. I saw something overnight where okay. someone had done some analytics on some work we'd done. He said, I'm going to spend my the next month doing this. He did it and he delivered it for us. That sort of sense of we're a small team, but there are millions of people out there just willing to do their bit. That really makes a difference because that's the way change happens. It's not one person. It's many people all playing their different roles. 
in one of my favorite episodes, which is episode 133 with Dr. Michio Kaku, we talked to him about all kinds of science, theoretical physics, all kinds of great stuff. He is the author of the book, The Future of the Mind, The Scientific Quest to Understand, Enhance, and Empower the Mind. And we get a lot of really good nuggets out of Dr. Kaku. Specifically, we hit on science and technology and the conscious brain. Please enjoy this clip with Dr. Michio Kaku, episode 133. Is there any truth behind this this myth, or, well, I don't want to call it a myth, this thing we've heard forever that we only use a very small percentage of our brain? Is there a portion that we can engage and become superhuman? Uh, well, the short answer is no. However... Uh, if you brain scan the brain, you realize that the conscious brain is only a tiny, tiny fraction of the entire unconscious brain. Uh, think of a corporation. In a corporation, the CEO does not have to know everything that's happening in the mailroom. The CEO only deals with the big picture. So most of a corporation's thinking is actually unconscious. Same thing with the brain. Most of the activity of the brain is unconscious. However, because of this, we could then begin to analyze how the brain might be miswired or how the brain may be enhanced. For example, some people who have injury to the left temporal lobe become super mathematical geniuses. One boy had a bullet that went through the left temporal lobe. Another man bashed his head on the swimming pool uh, diving in. Both of them began to emerge as super mathematical geniuses afterwards. Now, after this interview... Do not go home and pick up a hammer and hit yourself on the left temporal lobe hoping to become a genius. It doesn't work that way. But we have a theory now as to how it happens. Photographic memory, we now believe, is because the brain has, in some sense, forgot how to erase a memory. We used to think that the brain records and then the brain naturally lets the memory decay with time. All textbooks say that. Memory just degrade with time. Many scientists don't believe that anymore. They believe that the erasing process is a very complicated biochemical mechanism. In these people who have photographic memory, the erase mechanism is broken. They have forgotten how to forget. They record memories just like we do. But unlike our brain, their brain does not erase these memories. So we too have that same capability. Our brain is also capable of super mathematical and artistic feats. I think the funniest part is, a couple weeks ago, President Obama joked around about building the Iron Man suit. And they've kind of put it out there saying, we want to build that suit. And 20 years ago, five years ago, we would have laughed at that, thinking that it was impossible, that type of thing. I just love where we are now with science and technology, where these things that were considered fantasy or sci-fi really are in the realm of possibility. Right. And if you watch, for example, the movie The Matrix, uh, you say to yourself, come on, I mean, uh, uploading memories into the mind, learning karate by pressing a button. Well, believe it or not, uh, we have active groups at Wake Forest University, Berkeley, uh, Brown University that are doing just that. At Wake Forest University last year, they recorded the first uh, memory and they reinserted the memory back into an animal and the ma animal remembered. Wow. This is history making. At Wake Forest University, they took a mouse, and the hippocampus is a small organ that processes memories. They tape-recorded a memory of a mouse drinking water. Then the mouse forgot the task over time. Then they reinserted the memory back into the mouse, and bingo, the mouse remembered immediately. Next will be primates. 
we're going to record memories of primates, for example, eating a banana or something, and then record it and then shoot the memory back into the monkey. And the short-term goal is to create a brain pacemaker for Alzheimer's patients. That's why millions of dollars are being spent into this because we know that there are going to be millions of people suffering from Alzheimer's, and why not create a brain pacemaker? You push the button and you reinsert the memories into the hippocampus so that the person knows who they are, who their children are, where they live, where they left the keys, and that could prevent a a social catastrophe is we have millions of Alzheimer's patients wandering around, getting lost, not knowing who they are, creating a huge problem for their families. And then beyond that, who knows, maybe we'll be able to upload the vacation that we never had. As we move on my list of the best of 2014 episodes, we move to episode 135 with Andrew Yang. Andrew is the author of Smart People Should Build Things, How to Restore Our Culture of Achievement, build a path for entrepreneurs, and create new jobs in America. He's also the founder and CEO of Venture for America, which is an organization dedicated to connecting promising graduates with startups with the hope of fostering a generation of entrepreneurs who can create economic gain. I was so excited to talk to Andrew because his book, Smart People Should Build Things, was one of my favorite books of 2014. If you enjoyed this clip, make sure you check out the full episode Episode 135 with Andrew Yang on smartpeoplepodcast.com. For the most part, humans are risk averse. So you go to college and whether you're paying for it or your parents are paying for it, you're taking on this debt and your brain is wired to say, if you do this, it will be less risky. You will make money. You can buy nice things. You can find a mate and live happily ever after. But that's just the ideal. As we know, it very rarely happens like that. Well, well, certainly right now, the conventional paths are getting less and less secure. Mm-hmm. And you, you can see that. And, you know, I'll speak to law school, one, because it's the most stark, and two, because I have the most direct personal experience with it. So for me, when I graduated from Columbia, then worked at, at Davis Polk, it was, and I, I was lucky on a, a couple of levels. I mean, it was a good time to be graduating, and, you know, like, I had multiple offers because that economy was quite good. But what, I, what hit me was that the nature of the work I was doing was uh, just a bad fit for me on, on multiple levels. And like I, I was the embodiment of a transaction cost where if you could imagine these very large gears turning, I was like the grease on the gears designed just to keep the wheel turning. Uh, and then if you had a deal that was worth tens of millions of dollars, then it's worth it to pay the law firm, uh, you know, one point. 2 million or whatever it is to like uh, get the paperwork done, which means it's worth it to pay young Andrew, you know, like 140,000 or whatever it was to, to make sure that that all, all looked okay, but that it really didn't matter if it was me or someone else in that role. Uh, and certainly for me, I figured out, I actually remember this, this time when I was like, why am I doing this job if, I, if it's such a bad fit and I'm not enjoying it? And so I thought, well, it must be because they're paying me a lot of money for you know, a 24-year-old with no experience. And so I remember vividly going to Bloomingdale's and just buying stuff to be like, okay, <laughs> if I'm doing this job for the money, like, I guess I should go shopping and see if that does something for me. So I, I went and I bought like, some clothes and I bought my, my, my family some presents. And I went home and I was like, that did very little for me. <laughs> yeah. And then I think I quit the job like a, a few months later. So it's, and when you talk about like the risk aversion that builds up, it's like the risks that we don't talk about are the risks of 
waking up and doing a job you don't like, uh, of waking up and looking in the mirror and, and not feeling good about yourself because you know you're not actually engaged with what you're doing day to day, um, with becoming increasingly risk averse and having life obligations build up to the point where you're genuinely constrained in the choices you make. Um, so, so those are the risks that people don't tell you about. Like the risks that they, they, you think about is that you're somehow going to fall in the ditch and starve to death, you know, which is something I also learned is that after I started a company and it failed, it turns out you don't starve, you don't die, like no one comes and takes your stuff. <laughs> like, like things are, we need to repackage the way our young people think about risks and, and think about uh, like the more subtle risks that don't get discussed. It seems like Wall Street has been in the news for the last five to 10 years in one way or another. So I was really excited to talk to our next guest, who is featured on episode 136, Kevin Roos. Kevin wrote the book, Young Money, Inside the Hidden World of Wall Street's Post-Crash Recruits. This is a pretty cool book because Kevin spent more than three years shadowing eight entry-level analysts at leading investment firms. And he chronicled their stories, their triumphs, disappointments, and put it all out there for the world to see. It was great getting an in-depth look at what people thought about becoming a broker or financial analyst or whatever on Wall Street. And both Chris and I were actually pretty surprised by his response and with his book. We interviewed a guy named Lawrence Krauss. He's this one of the smartest guys in the world. And he said one of the good things to come out of the financial collapse is perhaps all the good students wouldn't go into finance. And okay, I thought, okay, that's kind of selfish on his part. But then he said, you've got all these kids that are saying, I can become an investment banker on Wall Street with frankly not needing to know a lot. I have to work long hours, but there's not the same intellectual baggage required to be able to do it. And he said, you know, why should I take a degree in engineering or science when I can make a killing on Wall Street? And I, I think that kind of parallels what you're saying in a sense. I mean, what is your thoughts on that quote? Well, I think it's true. I mean, I think for many years, Wall Street was this incredible siphon of talent. Um, and it, there was sort of almost a generation of people who became investment bankers by accident. You know, they, they had gone to Harvard um, and majored in art history, and um, and Goldman Sachs came along and said, you know, just do this for two years, and then they agreed to it, and they got stuck. You know, they they never left, and so that happened for many many years. And I think it was almost a function of just sort of the banks being really good at recruiting, and people, you know, and you know, top colleges not giving students the sense that they had a lot of marketable skills when they left. And I think that's changed now. I think over the course of the three years that I spent following these people, um, the sort of the atmosphere changed around Wall Street recruiting. So now if you look at the data coming out of Harvard or Princeton or Yale, um, there are fewer students going to, into finance and more students going into tech. And I think that is a direct result of the financial crisis because I think people are now starting to sort of question um, you know, am I going to get stuck? Do I want to be a Wall Street banker for the rest of my career? I think the, the 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 sales pitch for the banks has gotten a lot harder because they now not only have to convince people to spend two years, you know, making a, making a lot of money and, and working incredibly hard, but they have to do that in an environment where banks are seen as sort of being evil. Mm -hmm. and um, And no one wants to feel like they're going to work for an evil company. 
April 2014 continues to be a powerhouse on my best of 2014 list. And we move on to our next set of clips here. And these come from Tony Stubblebine, the guest on episode 137. Tony is the CEO and co-founder of the Lyft app, which is now called Coach.me. And this is a life-changing app that helps you form habits with the help of coaches. I've used this app for months now and absolutely love it. It's allowed me to create amazing habits. And Tony was a huge part in helping me do this. We'll hear from Tony about the process of creating a startup and working on what matters to you, as well as, you know, the the downside of when you're pitching these ideas to people and not everybody thinks your idea is a fantastic one. I want to talk to you about Lyft getting to create Lyft. So going from your startups, Twitter, which had success and saying, you know what, I'm going to work on what matters most to me is something that really hits home for both John and I. Now, what made you realize you can make this leap and this is where you were going to go? You know, a lot of entrepreneurs, especially if they've started multiple companies, they talk about the lessons they learned in between each one. And when I started my first company, I really didn't have any idea what I was doing, but I swore to myself I was going to make it successful no matter what. So that was my mission. Don't fail. And, uh, you know, a lot of people talk about their real, like, high-level missions. But honestly, I really wasn't thinking much more beyond that. And so I, I built a little software product. I tried to find some customers. I ended up finding actually a lot of customers who were, who were running conferences. And for three years, is this incredible struggle not to fail. Mm. But by the fourth year, I'd built up enough business and enough of a team that they, the team was running the entire business on my behalf. And I was making like enough money that I was splitting my time between New York and San Francisco and then barely working. I mean, that's basically a, the ideal lifestyle business, right? Yes. That's what I I want. (laughs) I should have been so proud of myself, but it turns out like that spare time gave me time for self-reflection. And Mm. the two things that I, that really stood out to me were, I don't really like leisure. Apparently I like to work Mm. and two. I really didn't want to spend the rest of my life becoming the world's expert in conferences. Like I liked our product, I liked our customers, but that's not my, you know, authentic mission in life. And so I just said, like, I'm willing to keep working, but I have to do it on something else. And started prototyping things that eventually became Lyft and started talking to my friends about it. And you know, the difference between Lyft and my previous company, which was called Crowdvine is that I bootstrapped Crowdvine, and so I really didn't have partners in it. And I, I, ca- I kind of thought also part of growing as a person would be having high-level partners uh, around me. And as I was getting a prototype together, uh, my friend Evan Williams, who had been my boss at Odeo, which is what Twitter spun out of, and then had been, been the CEO of Twitter, he was leaving Twitter. And so I took him out to coffee and asked what he was up to and told him what I was up to. And he was just like, look, we have to do this together. I love this idea. I want to support you. I like, I can fund this. I can help design it with you. And so, you know, he's basically ended up being co-designer of the first version with me and a, a big source of our, our funding uh, in the beginning. And so it was just basically, you know, that lesson learned that life is too short to spend it on things that don't matter to you. And then I don't know if you'd call it luck or 
uh, effort to run into um, Ev at that point and you know be able to start a company with them. Prior to talking to Evan and you know showing him the idea behind Lyft, did you show other people or other friends who looked at it and was like, "Eh, I don't know if this is a good idea." Yes, actually, nobody liked it. Yes. Okay. Everybody needs to hear that. Everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I guess there's two things from that story that really stand out to me. Like, you know, one, there's this idea out here in Silicon Valley that anyone can raise money. And so like I raise money off of a coffee and you could say, oh my God, Silicon Valley is a place where you could raise money off of just a coffee. (laughs) But the reality is I feel like I spent 10 years being able to raise that money. I just always like to remind people that the network that you build out here that allows you to have angel investors, a lot of that comes from your previous you know, work. And uh, that doesn't happen overnight. And that if it doesn't happen for you overnight, you, st- you always have the option of just persevering and keep working at it. And eventually good things will come to you. And then that other, right, the beginning, very few people are going to see, see your vision because it's so crummy and it's so unrealized. I mean, you basically have to run into someone who's thinking the exact same way as you. And uh, Ev is a great product person, and I think he could see a lot of potential in it. Last but not least on my list is episode 161 with Ed Hess. Ed is the author of Learn or Die, Using Science to Build a Leading Edge Learning Organization. This is one of my favorite topics as we talk about the recent developments and the understanding of how people learn, how adults learn, the role of emotions during the learning process, and how we need to change our current education system. I believe that Ed says it best when he says we need to change our definition of what smart is. I've been in a lot of careers already in, in you know about a decade. And I enjoy change, but I get nervous with with new jobs. Am I going to be good at this? Are people going to realize how much I don't know? But the more you do it, that exposure, as what they talk about with fear and all those things, the more you do it, the more you understand, I'll be okay. I've continued to succeed going this far. And I feel like you got comfortable with that. What advice do you have for people, actually? Because you said you became comfortable in that unknown, but oftentimes it's... Uh, some people can take it, I know I still probably do, can take it as a negative when they realize how little they know. How do you get comfortable with the fact that there's some things you just don't understand? Well, I think it goes, I think it goes back, and I, I understand completely why most people feel, or a lot of people may feel uncomfortable, because if you think about our educational system, and, and how we are raised, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're supposed to get all A's. You're not supposed to make uh, mistakes. Uh, you're, you know, you, it's the, the system sort of penalizes the acknowledgement of ignorance. And, you know, you look at every great scientist and, you, you, you know, you talk to scientists. They're, you know, they basically... Ignorance is, is a requirement in order to be a great scientist, because if you knew everything, you wouldn't have anything to go look for. And um, and so I, I think we need a definition. I th- I think I created and I think what we need in this country is a different different definition for what being smart is. Being smart is not the amount of what you know. It's not being right all the time. It's not being the first one with the right answer. It, it's really knowing what you know, but more importantly, knowing what you don't know and knowing how to learn it. And 
we've, we've got to, you know, people have to decouple their ego from what they believe so that they're still willing to go out and, what I say, stress test it against better evidence, continue to learn, don't have a fixed mindset, don't basically be rigid and closed-minded, treat everything you think you know as conditional, subject to new evidence. Now, I'm not talking about values, I'm talking about what we know, and to try and stay open-minded, and to uh, not be defensive when you're challenged, and so we don't really do a good job in this country of teaching that in schools. Therefore, when people get into companies, they really don't do a good job with that. And that's one of the big things that has to change in the business environment that we're fixing to go into with advanced technology. And so the answer, you know, the, the answer I would give you is sit back and think about what is your what's your definition of being smart? If it's always having to be right, you know. There's no way that's going to be, you know, this the, this this image in the country we have of, a, you know, as a, a, a great leader is the person who knows the most. No, I think a great leader is, is, is a leader who knows what he or she doesn't know and is able to inspire lots of other people to admit their ignorance. And they go on a learning journey. And that journey is full of experimentation and innovation and trying things. And they just keep working at it hard day in and day out. And so I think that we, we need to change our definition of what smart is. Welcome back. I hope you guys enjoyed that awesome best of 2014 episode. Some of Chris and I's favorite. I know it's Really hard to kind of narrow down, but Chris, what do you think? Think we did a, a pretty good job distilling yeah. what we wanted to get across? Yeah, you know, it was tough to narrow it down, but what was even just as difficult was finding the best, if you will, clips within each episode. And I know I didn't do a fantastic job of that. It was just really tough. Like, for example, James Nestor on freediving, you got to listen to the whole episode to really get that feeling of, of what it's like to do that. And I, I found that struggle to be difficult. Yeah, I'm going to highly recommend if you liked any of the clips on this best of to go seek out the original interview, because it really is just a little teeny taste of what we have to offer over there. Yeah. Speaking of taste, uh, it's time for both of us to get going because it's dinner time. It is dinner time. I'm starving. So again, just wanted to say to everybody, uh, you know, happy new year. Thanks for listening. Please let us know what you think. If you have things you want to hear in the new year, we're, we're continually trying to get better. And if you go back, I think we've done a decent job of that. And we have a, we have some ways to go and we're willing to work at it. Yeah. Contact us on Twitter at smart people pod. I love getting Twitter messages from people. I'm constantly talking to people on there. So if you have a guest suggestion or just any feedback for the show, leave it on there. Shoot us an email, smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com. And if you're in the giving spirit and you want to start the new year off right, make sure to go to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. We greatly appreciate it. It's a small step you can do, but a giant leap for the show. And you can do it on Stitcher, too. Oh, wow. Nice. All right, guys. Here's to 2015, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.